You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. As, as a reminder, this semester we've been looking, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and the language Nick just used is we're looking at life with, like, and for Jesus. It's a language you've heard. It's a language you will continue hearing. We went over it at Foundations. Uh, and today we're going to focus on how life with Jesus isn't about religion, but about relationship. Now, I know that's a little spicy, but <clears throat> we'll get into that. So for those that don't know, I grew up at the Vineyard Church, which is a very charismatic, non-denominational church. And musical worship there was very flashy to the point where it kind of felt like a concert every single Sunday, which had its pros and cons, but the, the congregation also had various ways of expressing themselves during worship. But then at the beginning of high school, or late junior high, uh, my family switched churches to All Souls, which is a very traditional Presbyterian church, which in comparison to the vineyard felt stiff. Now, both churches have their pros and cons, both have led people to Christ, and I love that. But no church is perfect. But through those two very different churches, I developed a very specific idea of the right way to worship God at church. Now, I recognize that musical worship looks different for all of you, but because of my upbringing, and simply my own brokenness, I can be quick to judge people for not worshiping right. So I'm not sure if y'all have noticed before, but I more or less always sit in like the first two rows during church. This is so that I can focus on my own worship rather than being distracted at how all of you worship wrong. (laughs) Um, That is a joke. Um, But for me, worship is about praising God individually also praising God as a corporate church, but part of it is having that time of an emotional connection with him. So eyes closed, focusing on the lyrics, you know, raised hands for praise is how you do it. At least that's how it is for me, but there are so many rules or traditions that we think have a right way, and we judge others when they don't do it that way. For me, like I said, it's musical worship. If people aren't raising their hands at the right time or awkwardly listening along and not singing, they're doing it wrong. I don't know what it is for you, but where do we judge others for not following Christian norms that we have put in place, not God? So today we're going to look at Mark 7, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their distortion of the law, for their rules. And in this, we are reminded that while pursuing life with Jesus, religion isn't the point. So let's dive in with a passage. It will be up on the screen. We've got Mark 7. We're going through verses 1 through 23. We're going to break it up into like three sections. But if you have a Bible, flip to Mark 7. So beginning verses 1 through 8. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. 
and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, he being Jesus, said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So let's break this down, what it says, what it means for us. Verses 1 through 5 explain one of the many rituals that the Pharisees had. Now, to further understand this, the Pharisees had the written Torah and the oral Torah. And sorry, I'm going to get nerdy. Um, <clears throat> Torah translated simply means law. When we refer to the Torah nowadays, we generally mean the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, otherwise called the Pentateuch, Penta being five. But back then, the written law was the Levitical law given to Moses. It's where we get the Ten Commandments from, all the other laws that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then the oral Torah was a tradition passed down by the Pharisees, adding in additional laws. Now, some weren't necessarily against God's law, but these laws morphed into this ideology that salvation is something to be obtained through works rather than being a gift from God. So when Jesus talks about the commandment of God, he's referring to the written Torah. When he talks about the tradition of man or elders, he's referring to the oral Torah. Now that I've cleared that up, when the Pharisees mention the defiled hands of the disciples, they're not saying that they're unwashed or dirty. What they're saying is that the hands weren't washed with the proper ceremonial washing that the oral Torah commanded. And here's what's really fascinating, and I'm going to get even nerdier. Um, I really like studying like the etymology of words and being like, okay, what this, does this mean? And It's fun. But uh, the word they use here for defiled is koinos. I'm going to try to rein myself in with my nerdiness. Uh, this directly translates to common. So within the law, things were either set apart for God or they were common. So the Pharisees were saying that the disciples were eating with common hands, not hands that had been set apart for God. And we see this language throughout the whole passage. The Pharisees talk about defilement and things being common. And then Jesus talks about defilement and our hearts being the thing that makes us common and not a tradition that we don't follow. And we will come back to the word koinos, but let's move on for now because I don't want to bore you with linguistics and that fun stuff. So verses 6 through 8 essentially summarize the whole passage here. And the whole passage reflects and revolves around these verses. Jesus quotes a prophecy from Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And this is really straight up Jesus calling the Pharisees out. You know, he calls them hypocrites right before he, he uh, quotes Isaiah. Because they're so focused on their actions, honoring God with their words, their works, their rituals, but not in their heart. They teach the oral Torah, their own laws, as if it were God's commandments. And it's easy to read this, or at least it is for me, and think, I don't do that. I don't make up my own rules. 
but we really do. For example, anytime there's prayer, I take my hat off. Now, there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that talks about not covering your head during prayer, and we could have a long conversation about why that does or does not apply today, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. You see, as a kid, I was told to remove my hat during prayer, but I was never actually told why. I knew it was the Christian thing to do because that's what my parents had told me. It was the Christian thing to do, but that's all I knew about it. So rather than ask my parents why, I'm not sure why I didn't, but I was like, I can, I can figure this out. I can figure out why we're supposed to remove our hats. And I came up with my own explanation. Y'all ready for this? Like seven-year-old Michael trying to figure this out. So I thought we removed our hats during prayer because if God was showering his blessings upon us, then my hat would cover my head and I couldn't receive his blessings. That's what I thought. No, I mean, I was seven, you know, the, the logic follows, but here I was removing my hat because if I didn't, I couldn't receive God's blessing. I was following a rule to earn my salvation. Now, I still do remove my hat during prayer. Part of it is out of habit, but I, I also now remove it as a sign of respect and submission. I've turned this work and said, let's make it about the heart, not about what I'm doing, but about why I'm doing it. And I'm not saying you guys do or do not need to remove your hat during prayer. But the thing is, we can be told rules and think our salvation is contingent on them. And we have to be cautious of this. And so often we condemn others for not following the Christian rules rather than looking at their heart. How often do we talk about these Christian rules, these Christian norms, as if they're fact? As if they're more important than giving God your heart? If someone from church came up and told me they go to Joe's or Red Lion every Friday, my first instinct would probably be judgment. And that's unfortunate. I, I wish it wasn't that way, and, and that's something I need to work on. But that's where my heart would immediately go. But maybe they're not going to, to party, to hook up, to get drunk. Maybe they're going to be a witness, to be a testament, to be the good friend that gets their drunk friends home safely. In being so quick to judge the fact that they were at a club, I wouldn't take the time to see their heart because clubs aren't the Christian thing to do. But when we judge that way, the church becomes alienating to the people who are searching, who know they're broken, but are afraid of what we'd say. In Mark 2.17, which we studied a few weeks ago, Jesus said to the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is the church we constantly need to be striving to be the one that invites the sick, the one that invites the sinners, not one that condemns people for not having their faith walk figured out. Okay, let's move on to verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, he being Jesus again, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Okay, Corban, what does that mean? It was a term that meant something was legally, by religious law, dedicated to God. So in these times, part of honoring one's parents, as God commanded, would have been financially supporting them when they couldn't make their own living. It's part of a cultural custom that we've lost as Americans. So by saying that one's financial support is Corban, it means that that person uh, would no longer be bound by the Levitical law of honoring their parents in that way. They could legally sidestep this if they gave the money instead to the temple. Which is interesting, right? You know, the Pharisees who ran the temple, who created the oral Torah, created this law that allowed people to legally sidestep the religious law if it meant more money to the temples, more money to the Pharisees. And these laws directly oppose the law of Moses, which so often served to protect the weak and the helpless. The Pharisees distorted it to help themselves. And in this case, this weak and helpless is parents in their old age. But this Corbin tradition is just one example of the many ways the Pharisees rejected and disregarded the important aspects of the Mosaic law. They perverted that law of Moses for monetary gain, allowing people to dishonor their father and mother if it meant giving to the temple, which in Levitical law says dishonoring is punishable by death. But do we do things for personal gain under the guise of being a good Christian? It's easy to do this when you're in a position of authority or in a spotlight, in a position of attention. And we often do it without even realizing it. I have had to check myself multiple times, multiple, multiple times when it comes to hosting dinner before small group. I can so quickly start to think that I have to have the best meals and cook right and host right and be the funniest and have the cleanest apartment because that will get people to like me. Now I know that I'm, I'm doing it for fellowship building honoring God, creating a church family, developing friendships, encouraging discipleship. But it's so easy for me to drift into this false ideology of trying to get my identity out of what I'm doing. Maybe it's similar for you. Maybe there's other ways of being a good Christian for you. Or maybe we make extra rules, even if they're well-intentioned, for personal gain. So when I was a kid... We have a slide, maybe? Yes? When I was a kid, uh, I think I was pretty cute. Um, not going to lie. Uh, my siblings did say I was the cutest toddler, just so you know. Um, I don't have that on paper, but, um, but I loved playing board games as a child. Um, I mean, I, I, still, I still love playing board games. But when I was a kid, my grandma had these swamp checkers. <laughs> so... There were these, no, you're good. You're good, guys. I love it. So there were these swamp checkers, and they were bathtub safe. We actually never used them in the bath, but the frogs, they were, they were rubber, and they were squishy, and they were hollow, so you could, like, blow air out of them and, you know, annoy your siblings. Um, 
And then when you got the checker to the other side, there were little literal crowns to king the checker. You know, rather than stacking a checker on top, like you got to put a crown on it. It was the best thing ever. But I was like five when I played this. And I knew I couldn't win checkers on my own. I mean, to put it bluntly, because I was five and I was the youngest, everyone I played with was wiser, smarter, and better inclined to win at checkers. So since I couldn't win through strategy or, or aptitude, I would make up my own rules so that I could win. Such as, if you're five years old or younger, you can take two turns in a row. Or if your name starts with an M, you can jump forwards and backwards, not just diagonally. Now, for whatever reason, my grandma played along. You gotta love her. Um, but I made up these rules for personal gain. Now, obviously, this, this is very different than church rules, but are there rules we make up for personal gain? Or looking at this from a different angle, what about drinking? You know, I mentioned going out to clubs earlier, but different people have very strong opinions on alcohol. And I'm not going to say what is or isn't right, but for some, alcohol is a no-go. But should we spout our rules? Should we lord over our higher morality at the cost of meeting someone where they're at? If meeting someone at a bar or a pub is meeting them on their turf, where they will be more likely to open up, where they will be more likely to hear the gospel, why should we condemn them instead of loving them in a place where they're more comfortable? You know, but there are also rules that we follow, that others have made up, with what might be good intentions. We go to church every Sunday. Are we going so that we can be spiritually fed, so that we can build fellowship, participate in worship as a corporate body, gain a deeper understanding of God's word? Or do we go because we feel obligated, because it's the Christian thing to do? Do we go out of guilt thinking, well, I messed up all week, but at least I have church on Sunday? Do we go because our friends are here? Regardless of the rules we follow, no matter how good they may be with the false intentions, they're indicative of a common heart. So moving on to verses 14 through 23, and he called the people to him again, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Defile there, it's going to be the same koinos word, make, common. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So let's get a few logistical observations out of the way. 
in studying this passage, y'all may or may not have noticed, verse 16 is not included. Simple explanation, different manuscripts had verse 16, others didn't. It said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the same language that we heard in Mark 4. But it doesn't change the meaning of the passage at all. So while it's not worth dwelling on, it is something worth mentioning and noting. Different manuscripts have, some have different verses. Or some don't include verses, I should say. Another brief mention, but something we also won't go into, is in verse 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. But this is something the disciples don't realize until much later, which we see play out in Acts. It is interesting, though, that the disciples have to ask Jesus for an explanation of the parable. In Mark 4, the disciples had to ask, and Jesus says, if you don't understand this one, how will you get the rest? And then explains it to them, kind of being like, here, I'll explain this one to you so you can figure the rest out on your own, and they still need to ask. But Jesus makes it clear for them. It doesn't matter what you eat. What ritualistic traditions you hold to, they don't defile you or they don't make you clean. We see Paul reminding the church of this sentiment in Colossians 2 when he says, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. This is what Jesus is saying here. There's so much evil in this world, and it's so easy to let that into our hearts. For from within, out of the heart of man, count with me guys, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's 13. All these things come from within and they defile a person. I mean, Jesus is just listing. He has this laundry list of what comes out of our hearts. And we're so focused on what we do. The Pharisees are so focused on what they do that they're not looking at what's coming from the inside because it's not what goes in. It's what comes from within. Religious action isn't the point. We are so often focused on the do's and don'ts of Christianity that we turn it into a legal system, believing that our traditions and our actions are what separate us for God or from God. It's not what goes into the body. It's not our actions, but our hearts that matter. And do you ever hear people say, deep down, I'm a good person? And they say that to justify a bad action? Yes, I punched my brother because he was annoying me, but deep down, I'm a good person. But that's not how it works. Our actions are indicative of our heart. And we can go back to koinos, back to common. The Pharisees were so adamant that people were common and needed rituals to make them pure. But Jesus' death on the cross flips the tables on this. We don't need to perform to make us clean. We simply must be wary of our hearts. We must make sure that we are glorifying God in our hearts first and then in word and deed. 
okay, so now that I've gone over the passage, I, I want to further clarify some things. Because this sermon focused on a lot of negative points. What Christianity is not about. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Pharisees did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. So let's talk about what it is. Christianity, our walk with God, it's about relationship with God. But that includes corporate relationship. We are the body of Christ. Not me, not Sanaya, not Rod. We, us. But there are things we should do as followers of Jesus. But we must always be cautious to remember that our works are not what saves us. It's only through Jesus we are saved. But we're told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There are things we're supposed to do, but they're not what saves us. Think back a few weeks to when we studied the parable of the four soils. Mark 4, in verse 20, he says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. It doesn't say the good soil produces good fruit and is then accepted by God. We are accepted by God. Because we are accepted by God, we must choose to produce the good fruit. But maybe this passage is hard for you. I know I felt really called out as I was studying this passage to preach on it because I lived all of high school in a works-based identity, and it's something I still have to check myself multiple times, frequently, frequently. So maybe you read this and recognize Christianity isn't about ritualism, but you still want to earn your salvation because it's easier to accept salvation when you feel like you deserve it. Maybe you recognize a sin in your life and feel like you have to compensate to balance the scales. Maybe you're worried that if you don't do enough ministry, do enough Christianity, God will give up on you, God will get bored on you, God will leave you in the dust. Maybe you don't want to accept Jesus as your personal Savior until you've proven that you can be your own Savior first. But religion isn't the point. Nothing we can do can save us. Nothing. But think about how beautiful that is. It's true, we will never be enough to save ourselves. But God tells us that we are already enough. We are enough simply by putting our faith in him. God cares about the heart first. So while we do need to live the good Christian life, we need to follow God. We need to love others. When you prioritize that religious law over a relationship with God, we miss the point. Will you pray with me?